I'd invite Ben Tay to come and give us the message for this morning. Well, this morning's reading is uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I encourage you to open your Bibles there and follow along. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptising more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptise, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria and called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him... a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying that I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And it is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must be worshipped in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak to you. I am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went into the town and went and coming, were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone bought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying hold true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you do not labour. Others have laboured that you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard from ourselves, and we know this indeed is the Saviour of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Church, um, if you could just uh, keep your Bibles open or your service outlines to um, John chapter 4, that'd be great. Just setting up a few little bits and pieces here. Okay. All right, um, first of all, just uh, want to thank uh, Clint. And the church for just giving me the opportunity to learn how to serve um, all of us, I guess, through preaching of the word. It's just a great opportunity. Um, yeah, just at, right, at the right place, at the right time. So really thankful um, to Clint and the church and, and God for that. Um, well, why don't we open with a prayer and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would speak to us through preaching of the Bible, help us to know ourselves so that we might know you. Give us that clarity and that truth in light of your word. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So at the centre of our passage today, we have Jesus and the Samaritan woman, two people who are very much aware of their physical desires, so their thirst and their hunger, And they're also very aware of the object of the desires. It's obvious. It's food and water. But as the scene plays out, it becomes pretty clear that there are less obvious but deeper desires or needs that also occupy their lives and motivate their behaviours. And at the centre of their interaction, Jesus makes a pretty big claim. He offers a gift that will permanently satisfy her desires. So let's have more of a think about this topic, our human desires and the things that we do to satisfy them. So in the 1940s, Abraham Maslow, a psychologist, proposed a hierarchy of needs that motivates humans. You can have a look up there. It's quite a popular model and you might have come across some variation yourself in the past. The basic idea is that for humans to flourish, each of these needs ought to be progressively fulfilled and maintained. So we'll have a quick read through the categories. So you can see on the bottom we've got our physiological needs, uh, we've got safety needs, we've got belonging and love needs or relational needs, esteem, cognitive needs, aesthetic needs, self-actualisation and at the top transcendent needs. 
So leaving the debate to the exact order aside, I find it is a useful framework that points towards this broad spectrum of our inherent desires and needs that God has made us with. Maslow's hierarchy helps us to visualise that our physiological needs, that's air, food, water, clothing, shelter, they're only really just a fraction of what we as humans desire and what we need for satisfaction and flourishing. Jesus himself says in the book of Matthew, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? These deep desires are powerful forces in our lives, whether we like it or not. But for most of us, these deep desires, they're not as obvious. You know, they're not as in your face as something just like your thirst or, or hunger. So how can we see them in ourselves? Well, I think they reveal themselves in how we spend our lives, how we spend our time, our energies. They underline what preoccupies our thoughts, your fears, what we aspire towards, what we hope for. So I'll just give myself an example in this one. Um, in the last 18 months, I've had a lot of thoughts around owning a home and uh, in conversations with colleagues, I'm frequently reminded of the current market boom. And so there's a real fear of missing out there and uh, twinges of regret knowing what you could have bought a house for 18 months ago versus uh, today. Um, so I guess examining my own angst and preoccupation, there's this unspoken line of thinking in my heart, and it's this. If I could just own a house, I would be satisfied. And this is a common way these desires expose themselves. If I could just have this, if I could just be this, if I could just achieve that, then I would be satisfied. So I just want you to think for a moment, what are the things in life that you are pursuing? What's on your mind this year? And what's your heart saying is going to satisfy you? So is it safety, securing your physical health or financial security, having that right job, a house, maximising your earnings, having your retirement plan all set? Could it be in relationships, seeking that life partner, your soulmate, or just yearning for that better relationship with close family or friends? Or commonly matters of esteem. Are you focused on that career progression, academic advancement? Could it be your business, public recognition, social media followers, your physical appearance? Or perhaps you're just trying to achieve self-love and internal validation. Desiring to know yourself and live the authentic you. Or perhaps it's, it's a bit above that. It's seeking transcendence in spiritual practices, mindfulness, yoga, meditation, in saving the world through climate justice, living sustainably, or even in traditional religious forms, in church attendance and moral living. Clearly Jesus' words are true. Life is more than just food and we are more than just what we wear. Yet there's a sad reality, reality many of us may know, but perhaps we don't openly admit this. These deep desires and needs are a difficult hole to fill. And you might have experienced this yourself, having achieved or acquired those things that your heart told you would bring you satisfaction, they've never really lived up to expectations. 
the satisfaction doesn't last and, and you still don't have peace. And I imagine the dilemma in this way. It's like you're standing at the edge of this hole and you're not exactly sure how deep it is, but you're fairly certain that if you could just fill it up, you'd finally be satisfied, you'd be at peace. But the uncomfortable truth is that you know you've already thrown a lot down there and not just, not just little things, but you've thrown big things down there, things that you're excited about, things that you planned for, things that you're passionate about, things that you sacrificed and slaved over, and yet that hole still isn't full. So where does that leave you? You're onto the next thing, you have to get the next thing after that, you think, okay, what's the next thing after that? That's going to fill it up. But you're still not satisfied, and you're still hungry, and you're still thirst. I believe the woman in today's passage knows this dilemma very well. Unfortunately, Jesus has words of hope and remedy for her and also for us today who still hunger and thirst. All right, so let's, um, let's find our place in Scripture today. So chapter 4, we're going to have a look at that first verses 1 to 9. And this is early in John's account of Jesus. Jesus has already rubbed the Pharisees the wrong way. And the Pharisees, if you don't know, are the religious elite of the time. They're kind of the PC police of their day. So he decides to travel through a region called Samaria. And it's here in Samaria we find Jesus beside a well in the middle of the heat of the day. And he's tired and thirsty. So he asks this Samaritan who's by the well, this woman, for a drink. So to us, I reckon the scene pretty, seems pretty benign. Uh, but if you're a first century Jew, there's actually already a lot wrong with this scene. So verse 9 reads, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So first, at this time and place, it was improper for a Jewish man to be approaching a woman in public, let alone someone alone and, and then being strangers. And secondly, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. While they may have shared common ancestors 700 years prior, they deeply disagreed on matters of religion and worship. And in those days, it's not just a private thing that you kept to yourself. Instead, matters of belief and worship was actually really central to everyday life. So this is a big rift. And the Jews also considered Samaritans unclean in a religious sense. So to even drink water from something touched by a Samaritan might have made you um, spiritually unclean. So I think we've got to be clear here. What Jesus has done by asking the Samaritan for a drink isn't some casual request. Instead, Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi, has ignored deeply rooted societal and religious expectations in order to engage with her. So it's a scandal. And this, this woman, she knows it. All right, so let's have a look at the content of the conversation in verse 7 to 15. Uh, and before I say anything else, I feel I have to point out the, uh, the oddness of the dialogue, which I see a lot in uh, the book of John. I think it feels odd because on the surface they appear to be talking past one another a little bit. 
the woman understandably has her thoughts focused on literal water and literal thirst, yet Jesus quickly moves from speaking of literal meanings to transitioning, trans- transitioning to speak of this deeper thirst and the symbolic water that might satisfy it. It is a bit odd, but I think we have to presume that Jesus is intentional with his words, and it's important we do not miss what Jesus is offering the woman. So read verse 10 here. Jesus answered her, If you knew knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then if you look at verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, that's the water that she collects from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. All right, so what is being said here? Well, Jesus is acknowledging this woman's deeper needs, a need more significant than just the physical water she's collecting. And then Jesus offers her a gift, and it's a gift that will bring her lasting satisfaction. He calls this gift living water. And Jesus claims this living water wells up within the receiver like a spring that leads to eternal life. So this begs the question, what is this living water? So we'll try and answer that a bit now. In its context, living water had a double meaning. So it's either running water like a, like a natural spring or spiritual water. Other parts of the Bible can help us understand the spiritual water symbolism a little bit better. So if we look back 700 years prior, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and promises this to the Jews. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So here we have the imagery of this life-giving running water being poured out on a dry, dead land. And the spiritual reality is God pouring out his spirit on a needy people. And if we move back into the book of John, so if you're in your Bibles, it's literally just before our passage today. We've got a contemporary prophet, John the Baptist, who speaks of Jesus, and he says, For he, that's Jesus, whom God has sent, utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So John's saying Jesus gives the Spirit and that those who trust in him have eternal life. And there are plenty more passages that flesh out this, this theme and this imagery of the living water, but let's, let's put together what we have here at least. And I believe we can conclude this. Jesus is offering to give this woman living water, which is the very Spirit of God that dwells within you, gives lasting satisfaction and leads to eternal life. So Jesus is offering living water, which is the spirit of God that dwells within you, gives lasting satisfaction and leads to eternal life. Okay, so let's go to verse 16 to 18. We've got the next big revelation here, and we see Jesus knows this woman more than she could possibly imagine. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five. 
and the one you have now is not your husband. What you say is true. So having five husbands today, you know, would probably carry a fair bit of stigma, uh, but you wind it back 2,000 years and it's a fair bit worse. By Jewish law, she would have been considered a serial adulterer. By her own community, she would be known as a loose woman of low morals, someone you, you wouldn't want to associate at all. And then internally, you can see she feels shame. You see how quickly she changes the topic after Jesus raises this point. And also at the start of the passage, the fact that she goes to the well in the middle of the day when traditionally the rest of the community would be collecting early in the morning, late in the evening when it's cooler, tells us that she's avoiding contact with her community. And the passage kind of really leaves how exactly she ended up in this situation unsaid. But regardless of the how, I think we have to feel empathy to this, this woman. Her life is full of shame, it's full of sin, it's full of brokenness, alienation. She's got a cycle of this broken relationships one after another. And clearly her desire for lasting love, for intimacy, for security is yet to be fulfilled. And this is in spite of all her attempts, giving herself into one intimate relationship after the next. And and, um, it's just, it's tragic. But the good news is this. Jesus here, you can see he sees her. He sees her sin, he sees her brokenness, he sees her ongoing thirst, just vain attempts to try and satisfy her. And he knows her needs, he knows it better than she knows it herself. And what she needs is the gift that only Jesus can offer. So moving on, the conversation then takes a turn and partly in astonishment of Jesus' prophetic knowledge of her life and probably out of shame as well, she shifts the topic to that of right worship and she asks, what what is correct? To worship on the mountain as the Samaritans did or to worship in the temple as the Jews did? And I think the deeper question being, what does God desire of us? What, What is right worship? Jesus reveals something new again and he says in verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the woman's specific question is just too narrow. Jesus reveals that true worship of God is not limited to certain ethnic groups or certain physical places, be it holy temples or mountaintops. And why is that? Well, it's because God is spirit. He's immaterial, and therefore what is most important to God is that people worship him with their lives in spiritual communion with him according to his true nature and his true will. Therefore, physical boundaries or ethnicity are unessential. Again, amazed by this answer, the woman entertains this thought. Could this be the Messiah, the Christ? You see, the Samaritans hope for this Messiah figure he would be a new prophet to reveal to them all things. And Jesus, he responds to this sinful Samaritan woman more openly, openly than he has to any other Jew so far in this account. He says, I who speak to you am he. 
So verse 27 to 42, we see the disciples, they come in again and they're a bit shocked. They're probably scandalised by just seeing Jesus talking to this woman. And I'm sure to their relief, when she heads off back into a town, they go, big sigh, all right, let's just get back to business. So they start talking to Jesus, speaking of hunger and food. And again, Jesus turns the discussion towards deeper needs. For Jesus, what fulfills and sustains him is doing the work of the one who sent him. That's God the Father. To describe the work of the Father, Jesus uses the metaphor of a field that is ready for harvest. So if we look at halfway through verse 35 here, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest and already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. And as Jesus describes this, you can't help but note the scene that's unfolding before us. We've got the Samaritan woman who's going out to the Samaritans of her town and telling them of the Jesus that she encountered And these Samaritans are now coming to Jesus. And what's the outcome of this? Well, in verse 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But now having heard directly from Jesus, they say, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. So could it be that this Samaritan woman, this sinner, this outcast, She's the type of labourer the Father desires to do his work. The work of the Father is bringing lost and sinful people to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus as Saviour, so they may too have eternal life. And what I love about this work is how it actually points back to this living water imagery. The person who receives the gift that Jesus gives, that of living water, that's the Spirit of God, they themselves become vessels and springs of this living water. So the Spirit flows out from that person to anyone else who would receive the gift. And with it comes lasting satisfaction and eternal life. And it's like this, uh, this diagram. You might have seen um, this diagram of how one person might spread a virus to two and then to another two and they spread to another two and suddenly everyone's infected. Uh, but instead of the disease and death, there is peace and life. It starts as a trickle and then can end like a river overflowing. The Spirit of God, that's living water that wells up within you, within me, bringing life and restoration to a needy world. I find it's beautiful and it's compelling imagery. Okay, so what do we do with all this? I'm going to wrap up in the next five minutes. Pay attention here. So first, for the Christians, I've got three things to take away. Number one, remember you were just like the Samaritan woman. So you and I, we were stuck in our sin, in our vain attempts to try and satisfy ourselves and yet Jesus comes to us he's seen your need he's given you true life when you didn't deserve it so let this be a clear reminder for us to always be humble we need to be slow to judge we need to be quick to listen and understand people people different from ourselves people that society says or perhaps your own instincts say are undeserving of care and attention As Jesus has loved the Samaritan woman, someone he had every reason not to be engaging with, you need to remember he has done the same for you. 
So go and do likewise. Number two, rest in the satisfaction and peace of the Spirit. Jesus has given you the Spirit of God, and he says this brings lasting satisfaction and also a confidence knowing that your eternal life is secure. So when you are tempted by circumstance or internal stresses, whatever it is, to place your hope and security and satisfaction in things outside of God, instead we're encouraged here to lean on God's Spirit source of true satisfaction. Number three, join in the Father's work. The work of the Father is bringing lost and sinful people to see Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to trust in him for eternal life. So he has made you and I these conduits through which the Spirit flows to the world, bringing restoration and life. So let's pray that we might be the people and the church that God has saved us to be. It has to be central to our lives. It must be. We are starving ourselves if we ignore it. And also in doing this work, Jesus also promises us us great joy to be shared with him when even one lost person comes to see Jesus. Okay, now what if this is all new to you? Or what if you've never really taken these claims um, of Jesus seriously? What are you going to do? I encourage you today to seek an honest appraisal of yourself, of your life. God says through the prophet Isaiah, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labour for which that does not satisfy? I think you know the things that you've pursued in your life that has ultimately ended in emptiness and dissatisfaction. You know there must be more to life than just material gain, more than just health, more than just beauty, more than relational goals, more than financial security, more than personal success and more than people's approval, more than even your good works and your spirituality. And you know it's true because you've pursued it and either, one, you have found out you're too weak or you're too broken or you're too sinful to achieve those things or maintain it, or two, you've got there, you've acquired those things and the satisfaction still doesn't last. That hole is still not full and you still hunger and you still thirst. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal in the 17th century reflected on this experience. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in the things that are not there the help he cannot find in the things that are though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, God himself. The issue is not the fact that we have these deep desires, nor is the issue that the object of the desires are inherently bad to seek. In fact, many of these are actually good things that God has given us. But the issue is that we expect that object of our desire to satisfy us in a way that only God can. You and I, humans, were made to enjoy a relationship with God who made us. Yet because of our sin, 
we are separated from God and so we're left with this void and this God-shaped hole in our hearts. And now we are either too proud or we are foolish enough to think we could fill it with anything else in the world. But here's the good news. Let us listen to what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman because he is saying it to us today. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Jesus knows your need. Like for the Samaritan woman, he knows your sin, he knows your shame, he knows your guilt, he knows your failures. And despite this, Jesus is offering the gift of living water, which is the spirit of God, God himself dwelling with you, that promises lasting satisfaction and eternal life. So if you would ask him today as your saviour and Lord, he would give it to you. And if you'd like any help with that, um, just ask any of us here. uh, There's really nothing that would bring us any more joy. All right, well, let's, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can know you through the Bible. Thank you that you come to us in our brokenness and in our sin, in our vain pursuits, and instead you give us life. Help us to remember your mercy, trust in your presence for our satisfaction, and do our Father's work. Please help our unbelief. Though we are imperfect, we desire to be filled with your spirit so we may be a blessing to others. Put it on our hearts that we would desire others, desire to share this with others so they would also share that same satisfaction and life that we have in Christ. And we pray this in your name for your glory. Amen.